0: Hi, I'm Grace.
1: And I'm Sam. We're excited to bring you this very special episode of Fly on the Wall.
0: While we'll be formally kicking off our new in-person season next week, we couldn't help but do what we do best, be flies on the Wall as the biggest political moments unfold.
2: We can now make a major projection. CNN projects that California's Democratic Governor, Gavin Newsom, defeats the recall and will serve out the year plus left on his term, Newsom turning back opposition that gained traction earlier in the pandemic, dodging what would have been a serious blow to his party and his career in one of the nation's biggest and bluest states.
1: You heard it, folks. This week, we are talking about the effort in California to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. For insight into the recall, we left DC and flew virtually. To California to get the perspective of Mike Madrid, former political director for the California State Republican Party, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and expert in Latino voting trends and
0: outreach. But before we dive into that, make sure that you are clicking that follow button on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. You can also email us at our new official Georgetown email, flyonthewall at Georgetown.edu. Let's get into it.
1: Okay, so uh, Mike Madrid, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. Yeah, it's exciting to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So jumping right into sort of the news of this week, um, you have extensive experience in California state politics, from being state political director in the GOP in the 90s to working for the League of California Cities. Um, It's safe to say at this point in time that Governor Gavin Newsom has defeated the recall effort by a pretty comfortable margin. So what were your main takeaways from the recall election results? Um, and what were you watching on election night? So people have to
2: understand that the math in California is, is pretty clear cut. It's an overwhelmingly Democratic state. Democrats outnumber Republicans by a two to one margin. Republicans actually represent about 24% of the electorate. So only about one in four voters is Republican. Um, so the math you know, is always a very steep climb for a recall efforts to be successful especially in a really hyper-partisan environment that we live in nationally, not just in California. But Californians, I think, have a specific brand of of pride in being a very deep blue state. And I think that um, while there was some early interest in this campaign, kind of some of the novelty of it because of our first recall in 2003 when Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor, the media attention and focus gave it a little bit more of a circus-like atmosphere and probably more attention than than the math probably warranted and deserved. Um, And the outcome of the election, again, by by an overwhelming 20-point-plus margin is eerily similar to the way we um, usually elect governors in this state. Democrats tend to win by about 20 points. In fact, it's almost a mirror image of what happened three years ago when Gavin Newsom, the current governor, beat John Cox Uh, who was the Republican nominee. And going back to 1998, when I was the political director, the trajectory of a 20-point victory is basically the same. So, you know, California's being partisanized. You're not gonna have Democrats breaking rank in any measurable number to vote for uh, a Trump-supporting Republican. It's just not gonna happen, and it didn't happen. And I think that's probably why we saw the outcome that we saw.
0: That's super interesting. Um, From a Republican perspective, then, was this election really a referendum on Governor Gavin Newsom?
2: That's a really good question. The answer is no, it was actually a referendum, probably on the Republican nominee, Larry Elder. And again, we live in an environment now where politically, as a political practitioner, you have to be mindful of what we call negative partisanship, which is we're much more focused as voters on what we're against and who we're running against than what we stand for. It's far more important. So it's why you've seen this rise of extremism and the rejection of that same extremism. And it's why people tend to to go back into their partisan silos. It's why Republicans really don't defect from Republican candidates and Democrats really don't defect from Democratic candidates. So in a state as, as, with such a, a large partisan split as California, the objective of the Gavin Newsom campaign from the beginning was to frame this as a Republican recall and make this about the Republican party and Republican extremism. Now, they had a lot of help because Larry Elder, the candidate who was leading the pack, had a 20-year radio shock jock history of talking about some pretty extreme conservative and even beyond conservative positions, um, which helped define the race. And like so many races, whichever candidate was going to be highlighted was going to be losing support, right? It's when, If the referendum were purely on Gavin Newsom you would have seen this a much closer race. But because the campaign was able to successfully frame this as a referendum on Republican extremism, you saw a a pretty wide collapse of independent, moderate Democratic support for even considering a Republican nominee.
1: And so along those lines, was there any way that Republicans could have handled their messaging better to have a more competitive race? Or was the Larry Elder effect and the sort of mirroring of Gavin Newsom's election Inevitable in California.
2: Yeah, look, I think being California and again, just the partisan advantage, there was really no way the math was going to allow a Republican to win this race. But but having said that, I mean, the question really begs a broader look at what's happening with the Republican Party. There are examples of very successful Republican governors in blue states. Larry Hogan right there in Maryland, where you guys are, are at uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts. Vermont has a Republican governor and there, th- those three governors specifically are amongst the most popular governors in the country. Um, Again, Republican governors of democratic Democratic states. They all have one thing in common though, and that is that they're very anti-Trump, and they've been outspoken critics of the rise of Trumpism and nationalism, ethno-nationalism in the Republican party. They've been very vocal in their critiques of what is happening uh, culturally um, and structurally within the Republican party. And that's really cemented their credibility um, as centrist candidates, as people who are serious about governing their states, who aren't engaging in the kind of, you know, performative nature of politics that has consumed the GOP. And as a result, um, they're they're being praised by their constituents for it. So there is a roadmap for Republicans to get out of this. But by and large, the average Republican activist, the average Republican voter doesn't have much of an appetite for governing anymore. It's really not a party that is serious about ideas or serious about taking the reins of power and being constructive in making government work for the broadest number of people. It's really been completely and entirely consumed by, by the performative nature of, of politics, people who are more interested in having large Twitter followings and Instagram followings. And that's why you see the rise of, of Donald Trump, for example, or Larry Elder, who who doesn't have any government experience, doesn't doesn't claim to doesn't want to he's a radio talk show host um candace owens is is testing very strongly as a 2024 nominee what's happened is the performative nature of politics has essentially consumed the republican party it's no longer interested in the in the process or role of governance the way a healthy political party in a normal you know democracy would operate it's much more focused on kind of gaining you know, popular in, in the populist sense, support um, amongst its following. It's no longer an ideological vessel to bring a philosophy of government forward. It's
1: it's simply about popularity for the sake of popularity. So along those lines, um, sort of zooming out beyond California to that sort of the culture war that our politics have become, uh, you, of course, are co-founder of the Lincoln Project, um, which was, it's sort of a, an idiosyncratic group. It's, it's Republican, Republican strategists, and yet highly critical of Trump. So tell us about founding that group, what the impetus for that was and what political niche you sought to fill there.
2: Well, it really highlighted the divide between what I guess is derisively termed as establishment Republicans, which the eight of us as co-founders were, believers in the idea of classical conservatism, at least as as we have known it in America since the end of the Second World War, which was basically a philosophy saying that we think smaller government Um, You know, less taxes, uh, 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 less of a regulatory environment, business and economic issues driving um, society forward would have the effect, the net effect of, of improving the quality of life and strengthening, strengthening society, Um, you know, as much as, you know, you can criticize one way or the other, it's a philosophy of governance, it's one that I tend to adhere to. Um, Trumpism was really a rejection of all of those. Trumpism is really about the rise of populist nationalism, kind of the America First concept, right, which is very deeply and closely correlated to to ethno nationalism, which is America is essentially a white Christian nation, and that should be its interest in pursuing that um, and protecting that. So it becomes much more much more isolationist as a society, much more protectionist. Um, You saw Donald Trump, for example, increase tariffs, which are taxes. His tax plan actually raised taxes on the rich. You saw our national debt explode. You saw us remove ourselves from the global theater and become much more protectionist. And and all of these ideas are really anathema to modern conservatism, at least as, as it's been known for the past 50 or 60 years. And so Donald Trump wasn't just a threat to the country, which I genuinely believe he was, but he was also a threat to conservatism and and to the Republican Party, as I had known it, as we had known it. And so this split necessitated us, um, you know, as political practitioners to use our best skills to make sure that we stopped the threat, again, not just to the party, but to the country. And I think one of the remarkable stories about the Lincoln Project was it it fell on the, the shoulders of Republican political consultants. Um, when the the proper role should have been elected officials, both in the Senate and the House and throughout the country, as Republicans standing up and saying, look, this is bad, this is dangerous, this is a threat. Again, not just to our party, but to the country. And that complete lack of courage, that complete lack of moral compunction, I think necessitated practitioners to stand up and say, well, we can do something about it. It's time that somebody did something. And if the Senate has failed in its mission and the House is failing in its moral requisite and no Republican establishment figures will stand up and say what is obvious to all of us, then we'll stand up and we'll fight. And that was what we did and, and obviously successfully and that impacted the outcome of the race. But the threat the threat continues. I mean, it's not, it wasn't just one person, right? This is, this is about, this isn't just about Trump. We call it Trumpism, but it's really the rise of of nationalism at a time when society is undergoing some really profound changes. And I think uh, even though we're no longer working together, the Lincoln Project co-founders, all of us are still involved and engaged in advancing and protecting the American experiment in our own ways.
0: That's a really fascinating analysis, Um, especially the nationalism piece. Do you think that's more of a change in the GOP because of the demographics of the population, or is it more of like, a purely ideological thing that's just been brewing for a while within the party?
2: That's a good question, Grace. I mean, look, the the truth is, since I was a young Republican at at Georgetown, there have been nationalist elements in the Republican Party. Uh, Pat Buchanan, another Georgetown graduate, right, was really kind of the modern precursor of the America First movement. And in 1992 uh, makes a primary challenge against George Herbert Walker Bush and gets 30% of the vote um, in the Republican primary. So this has always been a part of of center-right in American politics. It has always been there. It has simply never been the majority and that is no longer the case. It is now dominant. And so I think the the way to best answer your question is to to ask why has it moved from a small niche, a small lane, uh, of the Republican party to become a majority. And the answer I think lies in your question, which is it is demography. It is the fact that America for the first time in its 250 year history is becoming a non-white nation, a non-white country very quickly. And that loss of status, that loss of of, of um, identity, which is very central to all human beings is manifesting itself in this backlash. It's viewed as a threat. To um, not just the American identity, but to people's personal identity. I mean, so it's it's always it's been very easy as Americans for 250 years to say, "Yeah, we're you know, e pluribus unum, and from anyone and anybody can come and become an American." Um, you know, we celebrate our diversity. That's always been easy to say as long as we've been an overwhelmingly white majority country. Now that we're not, we're really testing. Um, our commitment to those ideals? Do we really believe as an American people? Do we, do we genuinely believe that these inalienable rights are given to us by our creator, to all human beings? Or has it really always been about the province of, of, of white Christians? And, and for many people, a lot of people, a very large segment of our population, the answer is no, we didn't really mean that, <laughs> you know, Or at least we meant it, while it wasn't a real consideration. And now that it is something that we're being forced with, and seeing our neighborhoods change, and seeing um, this this per- perceived decline in status, um, I'm not too not too convinced America um, works anymore because it's not the America that I've known. And in many ways, it's a disconnect between the American ideals that we see on parchments of paper in the declaration of independence and in the us constitution and the reality of what people are experiencing in their, in their everyday life. And that dramatic demographic change is, is manifesting itself socially in a way that is really challenging American style democracy. And to be honest with you, I'm not too sure that American style
1: democracy is doing that well in, in this fight, in this challenge. so, as someone who's witnessed this change and this, um, you know, this new recent challenge to uh, the American form of of democracy, as you put it, um, and you've been working in in the political arena over the course of this change since founding the Lincoln Project, did you lose any friends or make any new ones in the political or professional world? Making that, what's it like? For you being someone whose career is in politics, making this group that challenges these current political trends.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I the best man at my wedding and the godfather of my son, and I you know stopped talking for a couple of years in the middle of all this because the tensions were so high. Um, you know, I had to burn most of my professional relationships here in California, and I've I've lost a lot of business. It's come at a great personal cost. Uh, personal threats, um, cyber attacks, I and mean, you name it, we became targets and so it absolutely came in approach if they were really friendships in the first place, if, if we were so far off in understanding one another in our own worldviews. And unfortunately, there are moments in history where there is a time for choosing as Ronald Reagan once said, you know, a famous Republican president. And this is one of those moments is I really do genuinely believe that this is a pivotal moment in American history where the next few elections will decide whether or not we maintain a commitment to the idea of the American experiment. And it's for the first time since the Civil War where this threat has largely come from domestic sources, not foreign sources, and it's a struggle that very few generations of Americans have witnessed. Um, and so it's really, I think, incumbent on all of us to to stand up and be counted, um, because the threat is very is very real. We are genuinely one election cycle away from this whole thing collapsing. And so, yes, it has come at a great personal cost. It's a it's a cost that I have been willing to pay. Um, it's not one that I choose, but the moment chooses us sometimes, and you have to stand up and be counted when when the choice is very clear. And I think that in terms of defending really, I believe this country and what we stand for and our ideals, um has been worth the worth the unfortunate personal cost that it's come at.
0: That's very powerful. Um and kind of along that line, this Trump trend is gonna continue for a while. Um what role do you envision the Lincoln Project or a similar coalition?
2: Well uh, I'm no longer affiliated with the Lincoln Project, although it continues to operate in its own mechanisms. I um, I'm kind of getting back to my roots as a as a SFS student. Um, I, I'm very concerned about international democracy, and the reason why is um, if you look at how uh, easy it was for foreign players to involve themselves and influence our domestic politics. Um, you can only imagine uh, those same forces, those same foreign countries uh, that have an interest in seeing democracies destabilized, um, destabilizing other more nascent democracies. And I believe we're entering an era where allies in democracy are gonna have to fight across borders against allies in authoritarianism. And we're starting to see this type of activity play out. Um, You have, for example, um, Republican officials working very closely with with Russian interests. You have Republican uh, talking heads on Fox News meeting with um, um, strongmen dictators from from Eastern uh, European countries, sharing ideas, um, sharing tactics, if you're, you're pro democracy, as it were, um, you probably have much more involved or, or alike with other pro democracy activists in throughout the world than you may your own neighbors in your own cities who oppose your worldview. And so, I believe uh, we're entering a, a phase, again, in in geopolitical history, that is going to be defined between these two competing worldviews, one which will be pro-democracy and pro-democratic efforts, one which is going to be supporting the other, which is going to be supporting the rise of authoritarian regimes. But it's not going to be a state by state conflict the way the Cold War was, for example. It will be between associations of interests within each state working across state lines, transnational, a transnational battlefield between these two ideas. And I think that 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 construct is what is going to define international politics
1: during this next century. Yeah, that's that's interesting and sort of looking broadly at your your varied career, both in terms of a political practitioner and sort of a, a scholar, both of, you know, international democratic trends and here in the United States, Latino voter outreach strategy and trends. How did you get into all this? What first sparked your interest, both in the scholarly and practitioner side of politics?
2: Well, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of it actually was catalyzed by you know my, my time um, at Georgetown. Um, I did my senior thesis at Georgetown, my undergraduate senior thesis um, on Latino politicization. You know, it was the mid nineteen nineties, and I was a, a student that came from Southern California, um, went to the East Coast and saw how very different we talked about race and politicization on both sides of the country. And it was very clear to me that the the demographic transition that the country was going to experience during my lifetime was going to be extremely disruptive. And I wanted to see if our democracy um, would be able to kind of hold, you know, could America be governed by a non-white majority? Um, at a time when, again, our country has never experienced that before, and, and conversely, could a people that don't have a Western European descendancy with those culturals and traditions and norms um, protect the American experiment, the idea of America, and self representation and, and, and a representative democracy the way that, that we have come to know it? And what's fascinating is, is, and again, I think this is true of every Georgetown student. I'm still grappling with those same questions today. Um, You know, decades later, the the research work I was doing at Lowinger Library, you know, or sitting, you know, is is still the work that I'm involved in today. Um, And I think that's the beauty of a school like Georgetown is you've got some incredibly bright young people who see the future in a way that a lot of students don't, especially politically, and, and are willing to commit their lives to working at it. And I think one of the great Um, blessings that I have had is for the first part of my career, I've been able to kind of catalyze that work that I started at Georgetown and work for 25 years as the Latino population begins to expand and grow. I've been able to watch this and and be a practitioner, be a campaign consultant and a professional for the first 25 years of my career. And now that the Latino population is the plurality in places like California and, and soon to be in Texas and in Arizona and the Southwest, the next 25 years, we'll be able to answer a lot of those questions in my thesis that I haven't gotten to yet. So um, I came out, even though I got a degree in international politics, my my work has been in domestic politics, but everything that I was thinking about as an undergraduate is exactly what I have spent my entire career focused and working on. And um, like I said, I'm kind of humbled by that. But at the same time, I'm not surprised by it because I think I think that's uniquely Georgetown. That experience is there's a lot of a lot of young adult minds who see the future and will spend their careers working on helping it to unfold.
0: That's incredible. Um so a lot of our listeners are, I mean, listen to our podcast to get kind of your expert advice on politics and kind of looking forward and what those trends will look like. Um, And so first taking a step back and looking at the 2020 election, where in many states, the Latino vote was pretty decisive in determining um, a lot of the outcomes. So from your experience, what have either or both political parties been doing correctly and what can they improve on going forward?
2: Oh, that's another really good question. And it's one that I think you, you phrased accurately is both parties are starting to do things right and both parties are doing things very wrong. So let me start with my party, the Republican party where I've spent most of my career working and advising. The first is um, the, what, what they've been doing wrong, of course, is, is creating this tension between a real nationalist view of America um, and being overtly racist, right? The Republican party has become the party of white identity politics. It's a party that is becoming more protectionist and isolationist, and it's contrasting itself with the view of the other, which in many cases is uh, people from Latin America, Mexico specifically. And so you see that play out uh, with the build the wall rhetoric right and the anti immigrant rhetoric and it's oftentimes couched as anti illegal immigration is what they'll always say but. Then you'll see policy prescriptions being put forth where they want to actually stop all immigration and you realize what this is really all about. So it's really the fear of change, which is driving that and Republicans have done a really dismal job of of being the curators the protectors of the idea that Americanism and democracy and the the, the the inalienable rights in our founding documents are available to all human beings. It's really something that I believe most of them in the heart of hearts believe is really exclusive to, to white Christian Americans. What they're doing right though, and increasingly you are seeing this move towards Republicanism, and this is actually the trend that I started my research work on 30 years ago at Georgetown which is the rise of populist economics, right? The blue collar workforce in America is increasingly gonna become Latino. The non-college educated manufacturing base, construction trade base, working collar, blue collar, you know, the workforce is increasingly gonna become Hispanic. And this is what we used to back in the mid eighties called the Reagan Democrat. These were people of relatively conservative cultural convictions, blue-collar workers um, who have an affinity towards uh, Republicanism. And um, that worked fine and dandy, again, for Republicans, as long as voters were white. It's created a big tension now that the Reagan Democrat, as it were, is is a non-white voter. So the biggest problem for Republicans is the cultural war that it's leaned into. The greatest strength is its economics. Uh, For Democrats, it's the exact opposite. Right? It's the cultural proclivities that it's putting out, the, 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 the tolerance, the acceptance of a multicultural America, um, the embracing of change, cultural, social, polit- less politically, but cultural and socially anyway, has been its greatest asset and attribute. And it's one of the reasons why Latinos have flocked so much to the Democratic Party And keep in mind, a lot of what's driving Latino political behavior, not unlike whites, is anti-Republicanism. It's not necessarily pro-Democrat. And you can tell that because you're starting to see that hemorrhage a little bit now, is the Democratic Party has really taken the Latino vote for granted. Uh, You saw this actually even in um, in the recall just a couple of nights ago here, even in California, where the vote slipped a little bit more Republican than it has historically. And that that is largely an economic problem. Uh, The economics of the left do not um, meet the needs of a blue-collar working-class America, with the exception of perhaps uh, the organized labor movement, which is shrinking dramatically. So until there is a more populist economic platform uh, that speaks to the hearts and minds of a blue-collar, non-college-educated Hispanic worker, you're going to continue to see a gradual erosion of voters from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. It's not going to be huge, but it's going to be measurable. And it could be consequential in states like Georgia and North Carolina and Wisconsin and places that are a pivotal, play a pivotal role in the Electoral College and who is elected president of the United States. So it's really the intersection of, of culture and economics and where one party gets one of those right. Uh, the other party gets the opposite right. And I guess the best way to to wrap this long diatribe up, sorry about the long answer, is to say that the party that is able to capture the hearts and minds of a multiracial blue collar community will be the dominant force in not just the Latino community, but in American politics for the next generation.
0: That was a really great way to end. Um, So before we wrap up, one of the staples of our podcast is our lightning round. Which is basically, we'll ask you three quick questions and just whatever comes to your head first, um, take it from there. So the first one is, um, is there anyone you hope will run in 2024?
2: Boy, that's a great question. The answer is no, I don't have any hope. Sorry, no, not, not terribly excited about what I'm seeing right now.
1: Okay, well, um, taking it even, even on the lighter side. Um, so as we were doing research for this, in addition to your erudite coverage of the California recall and voter trends, um, both internationally and within the United States, we couldn't help but notice on your Twitter, a lot of coverage on squirrels. So <laughs> our question is, are you a squirrel lover or do you hold an animus towards squirrels?
2: You know, it's funny because this whole squirrel saga began, um, you know, I live in downtown Sacramento, a lot of trees, we're the city of trees. And when I was in isolation in the pandemic, um, it was just me at, at home. My kids are all college age now, uh, single. So I, I uh, just got familiar with the family of squirrels that was living under the eaves. And so I started to tweet about it and it became kind of this viral sensation. Uh, I guess I would say I have a love-hate relationship with squirrels, but it's probably more love than hate.
0: That's funny. Um, so our last question is: What is your favorite memory of Georgetown?
2: Oh God, so many. Um, I think it was probably honestly. Well, let me just tell you what I miss most about Georgetown. I miss the intellectual climate, and I miss the caliber of the students. Uh, as great as so many of my professors were, and I have some really phenomenal teachers. I missed. I missed the Jesuits, um, but I also miss just how impressive even even when I was an undergraduate, how impressive my fellow students were. And you just knew people were going to go on to to be the leaders of our generation. So um you know there, there's a lot that uh, that I, I do miss. Um but but I think generally the best way to capture it is to just, just say the the intellectual environment is something that has really um never ever left uh Never left me. I've just, I just, I, I still miss it
1: to this day. But well, hopefully, with this, this podcast, we'll be able to bring a little slice of it out to the world. <laughs> well, you know, Mike Madrid, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's been
2: helpful, guys. It's been great, and it's uh, good to know good things are still happening at Georgetown. I appreciate the time. Thank you.
0: It feels so good to be back. We hope you enjoyed that special election episode as much as we did.
1: And make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have an exciting season planned for you, so make sure to follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod for the latest updates or shoot us a line at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu.
0: See you next week as we kick off the new season.